Ready for a new and exciting career challenge? At DHL Supply Chain, you're part of a team committed to creating innovative solutions for some of the biggest brands in the world. We're recognized as a best place to work, where people are valued, supported, and respected. DHL Supply Chain is hiring for a wide range of salaried operational and functional roles. Previous experience in logistics is welcome, but not required. All opportunities, no boundaries. DHL Supply Chain. Apply today at joindhl.com. Welcome back to Pod Save the World. I'm Tommy Vitor. I'm Ben Rhodes. Ben, uh, congrats on surviving the first bank run of 2023. We did it. Uh, we did. Um, and second, I guess. Uh, yeah. I, I, <laughs> Maybe the I, third I, if you count some of the tech banks. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't have a lot of exposure, but I will say um, my mortgage was with the First Republic. Um, oh, scary. Yeah. So like, you know, you see how the contagion can reach you fairly quickly, you know? Yeah, for sure. Uh, you are you're dialing in all the way live from the swamp today. How is uh, how is everything going there? How's our man D- David Lamy? Yeah, now I'm here. David Lamy's in town. I'm joining him for a bunch of meetings that he's doing here. Uh, and he's giving uh, like a talk tomorrow at Center for American Progress. People should check it out if they're in town. Um, I mean, it's, you know, doesn't change, Tommy. It's the same. Uh Big renovations at the White House, I will oh, say. Oh, interesting. They interesting. Uh, seem what, to be redoing the, uh, Put in a the situation room. Um, oh, so like West Exec, uh, that, you know, the mm-hmm. not, not the consulting firm. Um, mm-hmm. the, the driveway. Uh, the driveway is like got like a massive construction site in the middle of it. So which, like by the way, like was like years. how it was for most of the Obama years, too. Yeah. And I think Trump didn't do any of those renovations. So I think, you know, responsible Democratic presidents do renovations that make West exec and eyesore in a way that oh, great. Wonderful. irresponsible Republican presidents don't. That sounds about right. Uh, well, we have a great show this week, Ben. We are going to talk about this surprise Iran-Saudi Arabia diplomatic deal, reports of a Saudi proposal to normalize relations with Israel, Bibi Netanyahu's ongoing efforts to gut Israel's judicial system, uh, the BBC soccer and free speech, some news about who bombed the Nord Stream pipeline and an intra-GOP split on Ukraine policy that's becoming more apparent by the day. The president of Mexico is acting a little uh, wacky again, uh, and then we'll do some quicker but important updates from around the world. And then, Ben, uh, after we do the news, you guys will hear my interview uh, with Nazanin Ash. She is the CEO of Welcome.us which is this really cool, innovative, new service that is uh, helping refugees get resettled in the U.S. They're trying to bypass the heinous uh, political debates around refugees and refugee resettlement by just connecting good-hearted human beings with people who need a place to live. Uh, and it sounds like it's going really well. Yeah, no, I can't wait to see. I mean, usually, like, communities, when it actually becomes a human issue, like, communities even in states that are not you wouldn't think are welcoming. I remember Iowa, for instance, Tommy, they're yeah. very welcoming of refugees there, you know, even as they vote for politicians who aren't, you know, it's, it's know. interesting. It's always so great when you divorce uh, the real views of the American people from political debates uh, yeah. to be reminded of how much better they are. Uh, but I digress, Ben. So that strange sound you heard over the weekend, listeners, were uh, DC foreign policy establishment heads exploding after reading reports that Iran and Saudi Arabia had agreed to restore diplomatic ties Thanks to an agreement brokered by, wait for it, Ben, China. Is, is this Mike Pompeo's fever dream? Do you think he woke up like in a cold sweat? 
Yeah, yeah. This guy. Yeah, so, this, is, uh, this will feature, I'm sure, in some of his totally irrelevant campaign speeches. <laughs> some speeches no one will listen to. Exactly. Um, so Saudi Arabia and Iran, they have not had official diplomatic ties since 2016 after Iranian protesters attacked the Saudi embassy in Tehran because the Saudis executed a very well-known uh, Shiite cleric. Things got worse as Saudi Arabia and Iran doubled down and supported different sides uh, in the civil war. In Yemen, the Saudis supported the Yemeni government. Uh, that have been ousted. The Iranians backed the Houthi rebels. It got real dicey in 2019 when Houthis attacked Saudi oil facilities with drones and knocked out half of Saudi oil output. The Trump administration at the time said that attack was launched from Iranian territory. So this new agreement that was announced does a few things. One, it says both sides are going to reopen their embassies in the other's countries. Two, uh, they say they're basically not going to mess with each other's territory or internal affairs. And then three, they're going to get back into previously negotiated security, trade, and migration agreements. So, Ben, you know, I, I opened up the New York Times or whatever, whoever broke this. I read the story and my reaction was like, one, good. You know, these two ramping down tensions and aggression and all the proxy fighting, like, seems like a net very good thing. Two, I'll believe it when I see it. Uh, and then three... It was kind of interesting that China parachuted into these discussions, but you know these talks have been ongoing, I think, brokered by the Iraqis and the Omanis for a while, so it wasn't totally clear to me what China's angle was here. But um, the D.C. foreign policy kind of blob class, as you so uh, durably branded them, just seemed to feel insecure. Here's a representative quote from the vice president of the Brookings Institute, quote, what is notable, of course, is the decision to hand the Chinese a huge public relations victory, a photo op that is intended to demonstrate China's newfound stature in the region. In that sense, it would appear to be yet another Saudi slap in the face to the Biden administration, end quote. And I just like I, I paused for a second after reading that. And I just thought about how our obsession with China must sound to everyone else in the world, like Iran and Iraq fought a war in the 80s that killed half a million people. And our response is to be upset about this and not like welcome it. I mean, to their credit, the Biden administration did actually welcome uh, this announcement. So Ben, long wind up there, but like two questions. What do you make of the substance of this deal? And what do you make of this suggestion that the U.S. has to broker every treaty or else we just kind of feel sad? I mean, so first on the substance of the deal, there's been a lot of support for this happening for a long time. You know, so even in the end of the Obama years, we were encouraging uh, the Saudis and the Iranians to be talking to each other. And we, we said, by the way, at that time, hey, if you need to do it through some third party, you know, the Omanis or somebody have at it. You know, if you need kind of unofficial interlocutors. But the idea was there's this Saudi Iranian proxy war that has been engulfing the region. And wouldn't it be better if they can at least talk to each other? Um, it, pretty simple, you know. Uh, objective here. Yeah. Uh, so I think that it, it's a big deal uh, for them to kind of be reestablishing diplomatic relations, to be doing so at this particular juncture. Um, I think what remains to be seen, uh, and this is the key point substantively, is will this kind of rapprochement be mirrored in what's happening in Yemen or what's happening in Lebanon, what's been happening in Iraq, in the places where we've seen this proxy war, will we see these improved Saudi-Iranian relations kind of lead to, you know, hopefully a resolution of the war in Yemen, for instance? That would be yeah. a very good thing if that happened. Or is this just like we're opening up some embassies and, you know, you know, establishing some channels, but we're still at each other's throats in all these other places? Um, I think it's also interesting from the perspective of like what the Abraham Accords was doing, and I know we're going to get to that, but that because... 
you know, the the U.S. and in, in, in particularly under Trump, but Biden's kind of continued this idea of like organizing the whole region around kind of anti-Iran. And mm-hmm. this is the Saudis, I think, signaling, you know what? A big part of our policy is that, but you know, we're we're also wanting to talk to these people, and um, we're not kind of all on board with this idea that the whole region should be organized just purely around this anti-Iran coalition. Now, the Washington freak out of this was comical. I mean, Tommy, you and I on one of our text chains. You know, there was a great New York Times analysis. It was like, in a development that has heads spinning in capitals <laughs> yeah. around the world. And I was trying to like get the image of like heads spinning in capitals. Yeah, which, which heads? And in which capitals, right? Like, you know, I mean, in Washington, you know, uh, heads are spinning around because of like the, the, the exorcism that needs to take place of American foreign policy, I guess. But like, first of all, people describe the end of the era of American dominance of the Middle East as if. It was like a great era. <laughs> yeah, it's gone great. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> right. what is it? What is it that we're nostalgic about here? Right. I mean, yeah. we've dominated this region for the last thirty years, and what did we get? War after war after war after war. Uh, like, I, I, maybe, maybe it's not the best thing for the United States to have to be in charge of everything in the Middle East. Um, so that's the first point. It's just like this: what are we longing for that we're so, you know allegedly losing here? And, you know? and by the way, Ben, that slap in the face quote I read was in the Washington Post. And it's just weird to me that even the Post seems to blame Joe Biden from distancing himself from Mohammed bin Salman because MBS butchered a Washington Post reporter. You know, it's like this weird blame the victim thing. No, and I think that, look, what's clear to me about this too is, so why why did they do this with the Chinese? I mean, obviously the Iranians are tremendously dependent on China right now. So no surprise why... Iran would want to have the Chinese at the table on this thing. I think the Saudis, for we've talked about on this podcast, they are in the autocracy camp. <laughs> I don't know if the yeah. Washington Post, like as you just point out, Washington Post should understand that better than any institution in this country. That that MBS, if given the choice between democracy and autocracy, he wants to not be on like some American team of democracies. And so at a minimum, he is going to be hedging by developing a closer relationship with China, probably by trying to buy more arms and things from China, um, deepen you know, economic ties with China. I think he sees in the long run um, the, the need to have a, a, like a comprehensive hedge against Saudi dependence on the United States. That's going to happen no matter what Joe Biden does. It's not a slap in anybody's face. It's it's what's happening, you know? Yeah. And, and I don't, uh, not every story is about us, you know? Exactly. I, I mean, and even in the ways that this is about us, I mean, it's not like it's some like core U.S. interest is somehow in, in any way set back by the fact that the Chinese got a, a nice photo op. Yeah, I, w- I want to talk about the Abraham Accord piece of this next. But, you know, one head that clearly was spinning was Bibi Netanyahu. And I saw right before the Israeli prime minister and right before we came in here, uh, Haaretz, I know I can't say that correctly and everyone stop yelling at me on Twitter, please. They reported <laughs> that Bibi blamed this deal happening on, quote, weakness uh, of the Biden administration. But this coward did it on background as a, quote, senior Israeli official <laughs> to a group of reporters while he was traveling in Rome. So thanks for that. But yeah, to your point, Ben, like having ambassadors in the countries doesn't mean everything is going to be fine. Like we have an ambassador in Russia currently, I assume the Ukrainians and the Russians had one uh, before the war started. I did also notice that uh, John Kirby, our friend, former colleague, who's now the uh, NSC spokesman, made a similar point I did, which is like, look, you know, it remains to be seen if the Iranians will honor their commitment here, because this is not a regime that typically does uh, honor its word. And John Kirby is 100% right there. 
But unfortunately for him, because the Trump administration pulled out of the JCPOA, the Iran nuclear deal, the United yeah. States has no credibility to push that message. Yeah, I saw some. I mean, there's so much to unpack here. I mean, first of all, the BB point, the aside I make on this is that he used to, you know, stay at the Blair House when he'd come uh, to for meetings with Obama. Blair House is the place yeah. across the street from the White House. And they'd have the meetings and they'd always go long. And then BB would literally have the Israeli press over there and like background his own meeting and like trash Obama off the record and stuff. And we'd all end up hearing about it because then the reporters, you know, they would Israeli all just reporters, tell us. <laughs> well, exactly. Israeli reporters, like, uh, they'll respect off the record when it applies to like what they write, but they'll tell you, like, ah, yeah, Netanyahu's just yeah. telling us all this uh, stuff. I remember they started know? having the first meeting in 09 this happened. I remember, like, oh, okay, that's yeah, how it's going to be. Constantly, right? Uh, so put that aside. Um, but on, on Kirby's point, um, you know, I also saw somebody uh, point out, and it may have been like in the kind of Israeli ecosystem, like the Netanyahu ecosystem, that uh, you know the you know the U.S. helped broker deals like the Oslo Accords and the JCPOA that led to you know didn't lead anywhere, and so that discredited the U.S. Well, <laughs> no, that's because people didn't follow through on those deals. Like the like if like the the U.S. credibility was like harmed by the fact that. On the JCPOA, as you say, like we, we when we try to construct a multi-year deal with all kinds of countries involved, some are parties to the deal, but some like you know the Gulf countries, we were like briefing and getting them on board with it as best we could. Um, then when you pull out of that, well, yeah, like one of the ramifications of that is the next time there's some big regional deal, like maybe the U.S. isn't the best party to back up that deal because they know in that region that China is going to have the same leadership in four years and they have no idea what the U.S. leadership is going to yeah, be, right? That's right. So if they make a deal with the Chinese, and I'm, this isn't like an argument for autocracy, it's an argument for democracies to not be totally dysfunctional. They know that, they, that they'll keep that deal. I did see it in a good, we love Kirby on this, but he was like, he had some quote really that was like, I, I stridently reject your premise, sir, of like U.S. did, you know, it was like so heated, like at the the the, oh, no. the 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 question that like this is diminished U.S. influence. Like, I think it's okay. It's okay that 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 we don't, um, you know, that 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 things yeah. can happen in the Middle East without us being directly responsible for it. Uh, it's a it's a good thing. So even the if there, sort of- well, even if there's things that you're uncomfortable with, right? It's just it, the, 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 there's not like a a direct correlation between U.S shaping the deal and everything working out for the best. Yeah. And just like functionally, we, we don't have time to be involved in everything. Yeah. So the other big story out of Saudi Arabia was uh, the Wall Street Journal broke this story. They reported that the Saudi government has floated a deal to the U.S. Uh, about what it would take to get them to normalize relations with Israel. So the Saudis reportedly want a security guarantee from the United States, fewer restrictions on uh, U.S. arms sales to Saudi Arabia, and then help developing a civilian nuclear program. This would build on, as you mentioned earlier, the Abraham Accords, which are those diplomatic normalization deals uh, that Israel cut with Bahrain, Morocco, and the UAE during the Trump administration. This story posted right around uh, the same time that the Saudi-Iran deal became public, which was very interesting. Yeah. But then, so I, I read this one and I had a couple of thoughts here, which was one, I hope no one's considering this. Like, I hope everyone involved thinks that giving a, a, a homicidal maniac like Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman uranium enrichment technology is maybe a bad idea long-term. Two, even if that's not on the table, we probably shouldn't be giving uh, the Saudis more weapons until the war in Yemen is over and maybe not ever, even ever, if yeah. it is. And then three, like, why would the U.S. want to hand Israeli Prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu a huge political win right as he's gutting 
Israel's judicial system. So I, I don't know. This might have been just like a thing that was floated. Maybe it was dead on arrival. You never know. But it's still the case in, in Washington that the Abraham Accords are treated like they're this like unequivocal good thing. Insane. And the record is far more mixed. I mean, you and I were talking about how there was a House Foreign Affairs Committee hearing recently on the Abraham Accords. And according to some great reporting by Eli Clifton at Responsible Statecraft, all of the witnesses at the hearing worked at organizations with institutional or financial ties to the UAE or Bahrain. And I don't think any of them disclosed it. So anyway, Ben, uh, given nuclear technology to MBS, good idea? Great idea? <laughs> it's not, not like pretty far down my, my list <sighs> of things to do, you know? And, and to work backwards from like a really good point you made about why give Netanyahu a gift. I mean, I, but everybody involved, right? So Bibi is leading this insanely extremist government comprised of a bunch of criminals, essentially, right? <laughs> Literally. Cr- crim- literal criminals and extremists who are trying to gut the judiciary and are talking about eradicating, you know, Palestinian villages. And uh, it, it, that's what's happening over here. And then MBS, you know, after the whole fist bump thing, basically told, you know, us to fuck off and, you know, isn't playing ball with Russia's sanctions or helping out with, like, energy prices. So what a great time to do something that is a huge political gift to these two governments. That makes no sense, first of all. None. Second of all, if the Abraham Accords, we keep hear, we, we hear about it as like this peace agreement, right? Never mind that there's no war that has been ended by the Abraham Accords. But if, if the Saudis had such a sincere interest in peace and normalization... Why would we have to buy them off to this price tag right. for the deal? Like, the, the, like at a certain point, it's not peace if it's just like a transaction a among autocrats where it's like, you know what? You know what we're going to give you as a part of this peace agreement? We're just going to give you like a, a blank check of weapons and a domestic nuclear enrichment capacity that you could then use to develop a nuclear weapons program. Like, that's not the kind of peace agreement that uh, sounds that enticing to me, you know? No. And if, by the way, people want to point out that um, there was an element of that in the Camp David Accords, which was a good thing at the time. It's not like the, the arms to the Egyptians over the years led to Egypt being um, a, a more democratic place. <laughs> Let's just put it that way, right? The point is that you need to, yes, sometimes in foreign policy, there's like real politique and there's arms sales. But like if you don't have a strategy to make peace among peoples and to kind of have a democratic component of your relations with these countries, we've seen where it can go. Um, And so to me, like this just points to what is this all about? Other than like a, like a, a, this this has become a transaction to like pay a certain price to MBS to do what he should be doing anyway, because it's the right thing, which is normalizing relations with, with Israel. Yeah. uh, I want to talk about Israel for a second, but I just want to quick, give a quick plug uh, a reporter named Ruth uh, Margalit at The New Yorker wrote a long piece on February 20th about Itamar Ben-Gavir, who is the uh, minister for national security in this new Israeli government. And like you and I have talked about him on the show a couple of times. He famously had uh, a photo on the wall of a terrorist, a Jewish terrorist who, who shot up, you know, 29 individuals, Palestinian individuals. This story really details like just how extreme and crazy this guy is. One just 
quick graph I wanted to read you, Ben. So on uh, Ben Gavir's first date with his now wife, they visited the grave of Baruch Goldstein, an extremist settler who in 1994 had gunned down 29 Muslim worshipers at the cave uh, of the Patriarchs, a holy site for Muslims and Jews in Hebron. And that is who until recently, uh, that was the photograph he had up on his wall. Your first date is to the grave of a mass murderer. This guy is now the minister of national security. I went to the Hockendove uh, on, uh, you know, <laughs> on the hill here. You know, I mean, I, I, I think I, I went no, to Rasika with Hannah. Yeah, actually did that was my first date. Um, but but the um, that piece everybody should read. Um, it, it, the guy was like like has been. I mean, present like he's like the zealot of the the far right in Israel. I mean, yeah, scary. You know, he was threatening to kill Rabin. Right, yeah. Yitzhak Rabin, Prime Minister of Israel, did the Oslo Accords, who was killed by right-wing extremists. Like Ben Gavir had been threatening to kill him. Ben Gavir ripped the, the the little like uh, uh, thingy off his hood and held it up and said, "If I can get this, we can get we can get." Yeah, there. and one other one other one that because everybody should read it. But the other thing that just to, to give you a sense of how how ugly this gets, he and this is something Ben Gavir actually had to apologize for. Um, but the the, the wedding party. Where yes. they da- like they danced with, with like the fake body of a Palestinian baby who'd been killed. I mean, this is what we're talking about. Yeah, Ben, I, I remember that too. So there, Ben Gavir was at a wedding where, when like after the ceremony, a bunch of men started dancing and they were holding aloft the groom, but also knives, assault rifles, and what appeared to be a Molotov cocktail that they passed from hand to hand. And then one of the guests raised a picture of a baby while another repeatedly stabbed the picture with a knife. The baby, the photo of the baby was an actual child who uh, had been killed when his home was firebombed. Yeah. So this is, I mean, this is who this guy hangs out with. You know, like this is the the political movement and milieu that he comes out of. And I think that another really important point of this article, though, Tommy, is that he's not like at all shy about what he's doing. He's like, I'm trying to put on an acceptable face exactly. to advance my deeply extremist ideas. And like, he literally says on like the record, uh, you know, uh, you know, I'm telling them what they want to hear about, you know, the rule of law, but don't think I've changed. I haven't, you know? And, and yep. so that's who this guy is. Yep. So people like this being in charge of why Israeli citizens have been taken to the streets in, in massive numbers. They are specifically now protesting uh, Netanyahu's plan to overhaul Israel's judicial system. This weekend, there were uh, 300,000 people demonstrating across dozens of cities in Israel, according to Barack Raviv from Axios. It's the 10th week of these major protests. So again, the, the quick and dirty on what Bibi's government is trying to do is uh, limit the Israeli Supreme Court's power to strike down actions by the parliament and by the executive by giving the parliament the power to override Supreme Court decisions with a simple majority vote. They also want to take away the court's ability to review Israel's basic law, which is basically their their function, functions as their constitution. And Bibi wants the power to choose the judges that go into the judiciary. So the right wing, you know, people like Itmar Ben-Gavir, they have longstanding beef with the Supreme Court because, for example, they want to exempt ultra-Orthodox Jews from mandatory military service. The courts have said, no, that's unfair. Another mortal sin of the Supreme Court, apparently, Ben, was telling Netanyahu that he couldn't make a guy convicted of tax fraud, a senior minister in the government. Um, I was talking with this great reporter uh, named Amir Tiban from uh, Haaretz, who said the final vote on these changes could be as soon as next week. Then maybe you could see uh, the, the Supreme Court actually veto it. And then you have, you know, I think sort of a constitutional crisis. So we're going to keep an eye 
on this. But, you know, this would be a pretty seismic change for Israel's future. Yeah. And I think you see an awareness in the public uh, around this. That's why there's such an outpouring of demonstrations. And you see basically everybody that, you know, comprises pieces of the Israeli establishment from former security types to law professors to prominent people signing letters. Current Um, members of the military. Current members of the military. Um, But the reality is that that hasn't stopped its government. (laughs) So, So if this government, in the face of all that objection, still rams this thing through, uh, you know, you're you're talking about you know pretty uncharted territory where there's no recourse, like nothing. Can, what can slow down this freight train of of an increasingly illiberal, uh, extre- ex- pretty extreme Israeli government? You know, for sure. Two little things I saw in the news I just want to flag. One, apparently Bibi Netanyahu's son has been sharing articles from far right websites blaming the State Department for bankrolling these protests. So that's a very very Putin like yeah. move. Tried and uh, true, and tried and true thing. They did that in the Obama true. years too. Yeah. And then I, I did also just want to call out one of the most spineless, embarrassing statements I've ever seen from members of Congress on this issue, which was a joint statement from Congressman Josh Gottheimer and Congressman Jared Moskowitz, who basically said that Congress shouldn't comment on what's happening in Israel because it could somehow undermine negotiations or a peaceful resolution. Like <laughs> truly embarrassing stuff to come out against coming out against gutting Israel's democracy. This is part of what used to drive me crazy about any issue related to commenting on Israeli politics and the Israeli government's policies, is that there was a whole school of of argument that if we say something, Bibi will be left with no choice but to become an undemocratic guy if we criticize his undemocratic actions. But there's a an insanity to that argument because that has not worked. <laughs> like, like we, we, we've tried not criticizing Bibi at all and he becomes less democratic. We've tried criticizing him, he becomes less democratic and says, I'm only doing this because the Americans made me do it. Like this, I, this idea that we all have to just shut our mouths because if we utter any words in criticism of Bibi, maybe he'll do something we don't like. That makes no sense when he's already doing things that you don't like. Yeah. I, I put this in the category- tiny window of, to fix it, you know? And it's funny that the Venn diagram, Tommy, of the people that are really worried about the U.S. losing influence in the Middle East and and see this great era of of the U.S. dominance in the Middle East, those are some of the the exact same people that would counsel you to never speak out against anything that Bibi Netanyahu wants to do because God forbid you should do that and then he might do it, you know, be, and blame you for it. Yeah, of course. Pod Save the World is brought to you by the UN Refugee Agency. The UN Refugee Agency, or UNHCR, responds to emergencies and provides long-term solutions for refugees. They provide aid in over 130 countries, including Ukraine, Syria, Afghanistan, and Sudan, where people are forced to flee from war and persecution at their greatest moment of need. UNHCR helps and protects refugees by providing food, shelter, medical care, and other life-saving essentials. The agency jumpstarts relief in three key ways. They transport core relief items stored in even the most remote areas of the world. They deploy expert emergency staff trained to help in crisis situations, and they transfer funds directly to support the emergency. Because of generous supporters and donors, UNHCR can scale up its response within 72 hours of a large-scale emergency. Your support helps provide life-saving aid for refugees whenever and wherever emergencies occur. Donate to USA for UNHCR 
by visiting unrefugees.org slash donation. That's unrefugees.org slash donation. Support for Pod Save the World comes from the International Rescue Committee. The IRC works in more than 50 countries, serving people whose lives have been upended by war, conflict, and natural disasters. In places like Gaza, Ukraine, and Sudan, displaced families are experiencing war, extreme hunger, and life-threatening injuries. In Gaza, ongoing violence, bombardment, and blockade have made survival difficult for families living in damaged buildings and tents. The lack of safe water, medicine, and healthy food contributes to the spread of diseases, and children are especially at risk. The International Rescue Committee is working with local partners in Gaza to provide life-saving medical care to injured civilians. The IRC works around the world to help families in crisis by delivering critical supplies such as therapeutic food for malnourished children, clean water, cash assistance, and more. Your donation will support this work and help children and families survive. Listen, the International Rescue Committee is an incredible organization. They are doing the Lord's work all around the globe. I have donated to them, you know, for many, many years now because I know that my dollar will go towards helping people. It's not going to go to administrative costs or overhead fees. It's just an incredible group doing great work. I hope you'll consider them. Donate today by visiting rescue.org slash rebuild. That's rescue.org slash rebuild. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Listen, if you're listening to Pod Save the World, you need some therapy. If you're watching the events around the world that might freak you out, we've got this election coming down the pike. There's a lot of stuff that people uh, are stressed about, that are anxious about, stuff that makes you lose sleep, and therapy can help. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash crookedworld. Go today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash crookedworld. Ben, let's turn to uh, the BBC Sports and Freedom of Speech. So a little background for everybody listening. The British Broadcasting Corporation, or BBC, it's the UK's national broadcast service. It is the largest, if not one of the largest, broadcast networks in the world. It's mostly funded by fees that are set by the government and paid by the British people. One of their biggest shows is called Match of the Day. It's about soccer. It's hosted by a guy named uh, Gary Lineker, who was just like a stud pro soccer player in the 80s who became a broadcaster. He is also very progressive, very liberal. Um, one of new British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak's foundational policy pillars, I think he put out five pillars. One of them is stop the boats, meaning stop boats of migrants traveling from France to the UK. Uh, I think approximately 45,000 migrants made that incredibly dangerous journey, by the way, uh, last year. So Sunak recently went to France. They announced, uh, he and Macron announced that the British government was going to pay the French a half a million pounds to pay for more police, more technology, more you know prison structures to prevent migration to the UK. Another big Brexit win there. Um, Gary Lineker tweeted about this you know, Tory party video that was released by the Home Secretary about stopping the boats. Lineker called it beyond awful and later said it was, quote, immeasurably cruel policy directed at the most vulnerable people in language that is not dissimilar to that used by Germany in the 1930s. Predictably, the Tories, the conservatives, they flipped out in the BBC cave to right-wing pressure and suspended Lineker for breaking their social media policy. 
That caused a bunch of other BBC commentators and pundits to walk out in solidarity. There were some Premier League players who said, no, we're not going to do interviews with the BBC because of this. Uh, and it created this huge crisis for the BBC, or a row, as David Lamy might say, Ben. Quite a row, yeah. Yeah, quite a row. Shows couldn't air because they had no hosts, right? There was like no soccer coverage for a weekend. Labor Party leaders trashed Rishi Sunak for this, trashed the BBC. The former BBC director general accused the BBC of bowing to political pressure. Many people pointed out their wildly inconsistent enforcement of these social media policies. So Tim Davey, the BBC director general, ultimately caved to this pressure. He announced that Lionel Kerr will be back on the air. This was just a huge mess for the BBC. So instead of looking you know, nonpartisan, they looked like something far worse, which is that they were bullied by the conservative government. It also doesn't help that the current BBC chairman is a guy named Richard Sharp. He donated 400,000 pounds to the Tory party, and he helped facilitate a personal loan for Boris Johnson right before Boris recommended him for the job. So Ben, long term, I, I worry that this disaster plays into the hands of the Tories, people like Boris Johnson, who want to destroy the BBC because they know fact-based reporting hurts them. Just wondering what you made of this mess and why you think these outlets always, always, always cave to right-wing pressure. I mean, in this case, first of all, you know, Leinecker's statement was pretty carefully worded too, not dissimilar from rhetoric in 1930s Germany. I mean, which is... I think an important point to be making, you know, he wasn't like these people are no different than Hitler, you know, he's basically saying, I think, which is an important point that everybody should remember in immigration debates, including people like us, right? That when you dehumanize people and the way you talk about them, um, you know, that that can lead to dangerous places. That's like a lesson we should take from 1930s Germany. For sure. Um, So I just wanted to make that point. Like they've been, you know, BBC has been a, you know, uh, like a, a whipping boy for the uh, Tories forever in the same way that in this country, you know, how Republicans talk about like the New York Times or something, except to the umpteenth degree because of this kind of public dimension of the BBC. Um, what's interesting here is in the immediate term, it showed like the limits of the British appetite for culture wars, mm-hmm. because once the culture wars meant that people couldn't watch Match of the Day, they're like, come they're on. They're like, fuck, get Lindegar back on the air. You know, <laughs> yeah, like, like, exactly, like exactly. I, even if I don't like the boats and want to stop them. We found I, the pressure I, points. I, yeah, we, yeah, <laughs> I, I want to just, I don't want to, I, I actually want to watch the pregame show, which I have to say is something I admire about British identity. Is there a comparable American like studio host? You know, if, if um, I don't know. Uh, Not, James yeah. Brown or Greg Gumbel. Like, I was say, it ain't Tony you know, Romo, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's, it's pretty interesting to me that 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 the depth of passion for Premier League is like they inter- interrupted the match of the day lineup and literally had to do other programming. And it, you would have thought that the country literally came to a halt. Um, it's like a global I see, story. I say that with admiration. I do think, though, you put your finger on the fact that even though this is a mess and the kind of right wing heavy handed tactics and trying to silence, like you know broadcasters like Lineker that have nothing to do with politics on on their social media accounts. They kind of overplayed that hand. In the long run, I think a conversation about just what a mess the BBC is and nobody knows what their standards are and and they're embarrassed is bad for the BBC. And so ultimately good for those Tories who want to hurt the BBC. So even if in the short run, like Boris Johnson's handpicked guy might have to get forced out. And I, I still think that they're eroding the kind of domestic and global confidence in this institution, the BBC, that, you know, for, for arguably is arguably has been the most important media enterprise in the world for the be- better part of the last, you know, hundred years. And 
I mean, nerdy world of kid. I, I used to like listen to the BBC World Service, you know, because you could hear some it's guy great. in Africa and like in Zimbabwe reporting on protests, you know, in the middle of the night. I mean, you could learn about anything in the world. And now they're just, as they did with Brexit, they're just taking an axe to one of the things that people admire about them. You know? Yeah, as we talked about on a previous episode, like this incredible tool of soft power that the UK has at its disposal. They're just chipping away at it. They're taking they're, one by one, like the things that people, like the same people that are British exceptionalists are like destroying those things that that people see as British exceptionalism. It's Intimate, very yeah. peculiar, you know? Also remarkable that the internet and social media just continues to hammer away at traditional media organizations. Like early on, it was like, you know, classified ads go to Craigslist and screw up newspapers. Then it's, you know, Facebook and Twitter, you know, destroying websites when they told them to pivot to video or whatever. Now it's just like social media guidelines, like upending the BBC for a week. It's yeah. uh, pretty consistent and uh, remarkable. Um, okay, Ben, so lots of Ukraine news. Let's start with some substantive sort of developments I just noted over the week. First, Russia started using these hypersonic missiles to attack uh, targets in Ukraine. I think they've done it before, but they're really doubling down on them now. Last week, Russia fired six hypersonic missiles, which reportedly can go five times the speed of sound, so just unbelievably fast. That is a problem because if you're being targeted, you have far less time to get out of the way, and missile defense systems can't really intercept them, or at least not consistently. I also worry that this is just going to kick up all the arms race freakouts you hear among defense experts in the U.S. who worry that Russia and China are outpacing us in this technology. The second big thing, though... Um, the New York Times reported that there is new intelligence that suggests pro-Ukrainian groups, but not the Ukrainian government, are the ones who blew up the Nord Stream pipelines last year. The Nord Stream pipelines, remember, it's that controversial pipeline that sent natural gas from Russia to Germany. It increased Europe's reliance on natural gas. The U.S. didn't love it, but it got developed over time. The Times reported that intelligence officials have no evidence that President Zelensky or his senior team in Ukraine were aware of or had directed this sabotage effort. But apparently, again, they were sort of like anti-Russian, pro-Ukrainian splinter groups or something. The last yeah. time we talked about this issue, it was this like thinly sourced report by Seymour Hirsch, who's a legend of journalism, but it was on his Substack, and he claimed that Joe Biden had ordered the CIA to blow up Nord Stream. The US denied it. No one has been able to confirm this. I don't think anyone thinks it's true. Um, so Ben, like, you know, if you have thoughts on hypersonic missiles, please let rip. I did think this Nord Stream <laughs> stuff was interesting. Like I, I look, I, the New York Times has made some prominent mistakes when it comes to like intelligence reporting over the years. I still trust them and their process much more than Hirsch. This new explanation certainly makes more sense than the U.S. doing it or the Russians blowing up their own pipeline and then rebuilding it. But I still don't get how a totally independent group can pull off something this sophisticated. I, I was skeptical that the Ukrainians had the capacity to blow this up, but obviously it happened. There's been other attacks deep into Russian territory. Like, What did you make of this latest a set of reports. Well, I was glad that people are still reporting on this. I mean, the the Seymour Hersh story was clearly, you know, uh, pretty thinly sourced, as you said. Uh, and there's it's it's an important question, right? When somebody blows up a major piece of infrastructure in a complex operation in the context of war, it's it's a genuine question worth asking: Who blew that up? Absolutely. Um, and and when I read the story, I I had the same thought you did, which is okay. This sounds more plausible than the Seymour Hersh thing. But I don't quite get what what is well, what is this 
splinter group that somehow operates without the knowledge of the Ukrainian leadership and yeah. they have and, a thousand and, pounds of explosives and like divers that can well that's them the underwater and you, you could sense the U.S. sources in the article going out of their way to try to make clear that like Zelensky didn't order this and you could understand why they would want to make that point because you know it's a pipeline that went to Germany and but at the same time I'd also kind of be concerned if that who then who did <laughs> you know like yeah. like if, there, if there's no um if this is just some you know group of people, I mean, and then I'm genuinely curious: is this like anonymous, the hacking group, and and they just happen to have a lot of good divers and some explosives around? I mean, so there, it raises a lot of questions to me. I mean, the idea that there are people who support Ukraine who might have done this on their own without government help, I think, is possible and plausible. But the, who are they? Are they Ukrainian? Are they other Europeans? Like, it's it's a very it's an interesting question, and it does matter because. We, we need to know, like, what, are we moving into a place where there are these kind of these subnational groups that are like a party to this conflict, um, which we can see, you can see can escalate in different ways. I mean, not the hypersonic thing, but the thing with the, the U.S. drone today over the Black Sea. Yeah. Um, having an ac- not an accident, something happened with a Russian plane that clipped a the Russian propeller. jet hit yeah. its propeller and they had, to, they had to bring it down. Apparently, the Russian jet also dumped fuel on it and like, did a bunch of other, you know, dangerous tactics although it was a drone so. yeah and it, exactly and i speak to that because there's a war in ukraine but then there's you know this pipeline is going through like territorial waters to the north of europe in the black sea we've got american planes and russian planes in the air and in, in, in uncomfortably close contact the point is is that there are these friction points where something could escalate and so one of the reasons why you want to know who blew this up is that I mean that could have gone wrong, you know, like yeah. that 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 what it, or that could have led to some kind of conflict. So I think it's important to know uh, what w- what's making things go blow up. Yeah, the sort of two big unexplained events are who blew up Nord Stream and who uh, you know, placed a bomb in the car outside of Moscow that killed a woman named Maria Dugina, who is the daughter of this like virulent nationalist propagandist sort of, you know, like intellectual father to Putin and Putinism and his anti-Ukraine rhetoric. I think that's been in some ways linked to uh, an outside pro-Ukraine group and not necessarily the government, too. I don't know if it's the same group. It's all just very murky. Well, yeah, and it, it, it also kind of speaks to where things could evolve, right? So if you want to analogize this in the friendly, you know, in, in I think an accurate way that is friendly or sympathetic to the Ukrainians, if they're basically on the receiving end of a of a of fascistic invasion, like not like Nazi Germany, there were resistance groups, you know, in occupied countries uh, that undertook acts of violence and sabotage, you know, yeah. and so it's possible that there are non-government controlled entities, kind of that are part of the armed resistance to Russia. That, but it's important to track that because that could get more acute if the war becomes a stalemate. You might start to see more of this kind of stuff. Um, where, okay, if the front line is frozen, maybe we want to make some more stuff blow up in Russia or we want to target Russians in third countries. You could see things kind of getting hairy in this direction. Yeah, that's the es- escalation ladder we've, we've been worried about. The other thing I just want to bring up today, which is the Republican, the Republican Party position on Ukraine seems to be sort of splintering more and more. And so I want to just quickly sketch it out. So there's kind of like the nativist, like dumb, dumb position epitomized by Marjorie Taylor Greene, who says stuff like, you know, Zelensky wants our sons and daughters to go and die for him. Like she said that the CPAC and she basically just wants to cut off money to Ukraine. 
there's kind of like the maximalist all-in camp. People like uh, Mike Pompeo, Mike Pence. Pence, I think the other day was saying, send them F-16s, you know, kind of do it all. I think Nikki Haley's basically there too. Ron DeSantis is carving kind of a, a Trumpian new path, which is he released this long statement to Tucker Carlson's show the other day where he says, supporting Ukraine is not our vital national interest. This is a territorial dispute. F-16s and long-range missiles should be off the table. Like Biden is bad. Secure our border first. China's bad. Talk about China. And then there's Trump, who says, and has consistently said, the war would never happen if I was there. I'd fix it after a day if I got back into office. But Ben, here's a recent clip of Trump's comments uh, from Sean Hannity's TV show on Fox. I asked him why he thinks Vladimir Putin would not have invaded Ukraine if he was president. Take a listen. Let me ask you about Ukraine. You've said that before. Why would it not have happened if you were president? Putin understood that you can't do it. You can't do it. Don't forget, under Bush, they take over Georgia. Under Obama, they took over Crimea. And under Biden, they're taking over everything. It looks like they're going to take over everything. The whole thing. They're going to go for the whole enchilada. They're going for everything. That's what it looks like to me. You know, that's not what you hear on on the fake news, but that's what it looks like to me. And under Trump, you know what they took over? They took over nothing, Russia. First time, first president in a long time. They took, he understood, he would have never done it. He would have never, that's without even negotiating a deal. I could have negotiated. China no longer respects the United States, it's sad. Now, Ben, what's interesting about that is that was audio that Sean Hannity played on his TV show on Fox, but it was from originally his radio show, What they edited out when they took the radio show to the TV was the following quote from Trump. At worst, I could have made a deal to take over something. There are certain areas that are Russian speaking areas, frankly, but you could have worked a deal. So clearly Trump is saying, like, I would have handed over Crimea or the Donbass. But so stepping back, like we got those sort of positions and everyone, there's sort of a a establishment Republican freak out now over the DeSantis line. What is your sense of which of these is, is the most potent political position. And and I do think it's worth noting that like Trump and DeSantis are very similar here and they have the combined support of 75% of Republican primary voters currently in the 2024 presidential primary. So first of all, I think it's notable that Ron DeSantis, like who aspires to be president of the United States, makes major foreign policy pronouncements and written statements to Tucker Carlson. I know. An exclusive <laughs> like, for Tucker. Not even an interview, like a written statement for Tucker Carlson. Um, so that's peculiar, but it is what it is. Um, and look, I, a pretty unambiguous statement. To refer to this as a territorial dispute um, is, that's a huge deviation from U.S. policy, uh, uh, you know, where the congressional Republican majorities have been, and that's very much the Russian line that 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 they're you know disputed territories that there are these Russian speakers in them, and and the DeSantis thing he pivots quickly to China. It's kind of like you know this isn't really the main event. This is a territorial yeah. dispute. We Look must be dealing here. with like the Chinese Communist Party, which DeSantis is a very good indicator of where the Republican zeitgeist is going on a whole bunch of stuff. And clearly, when DeSantis is looking at this and sizing up the politics, even though I'm sure he's got a lot of hawkish establishment you know, rhino types in his ear, um, like I, I, he still feels like, you know what? I see where the politics are going on this stuff. People want to talk about China. They, they're tired of hearing about this. They don't want to put more money into it. And and so I think that the 
the problem, and, and for the people listening to this who are kind of in in these debates and thinking about national security on a regular basis, I'm here in Washington, so it's on my my brain. Often you take comfort in the fact that so far all these votes have gone through Congress with all this assistance. And Mitch McConnell himself says there's no daylight between him and Biden on this. Yep. And, you know, we can always find a Mitt Romney to offer up some quote or Mike Pence wants to glare at Vladimir Putin. But the two leaders of the Republican Party, Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis, oppose supporting the Ukrainians now um, and kind of downplay it. And I don't know why you would think that that wouldn't impact the next time that the Biden administration is going to have to go to Congress and ask for money. They will have to do that this calendar year. And imagine the House Republicans having to pass like a 50, 60, 70 billion dollar assistance package, knowing that Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis oppose it. And and knowing that Kevin McCarthy gets pushed around by Marjorie Taylor Greene at this point. Yeah, yeah. So I think we've been way, like almost not alarmed enough about like, like whether or not we can even assure that we can get more money for the Ukrainians. I mean, I think at the end of the day, maybe you can procedurally have one of these votes where they don't need the majority of the Republicans or blah, blah, blah. But at a minimum, this will be difficult. I do think in their arguments, you know, Trump's becomes all about himself and DeSantis is kind of the zeitgeist. This is about China. Yeah, you know, more nativist, yeah. But I think Trump's argument, the idea that, well, this didn't happen while I was there is actually politically not a bad one. <laughs> even uh, yeah, if no, I, even totally. I think I, we can unpack this and we have, but the short version I'd give is that, yeah, because Putin was waiting for you to pull out NATO to roll in and take the whole enchilada, to use Trump's language. If there had been a second Trump term, that's what he was banking on happening. You know, he, he never pulled any of the troops out of Ukraine. The war continued under Trump. Um, they just uh, didn't make the, the events on Kiev because I think he was waiting to see if he could win politically with Trump. And that leads to the 2024 election. Putin will be looking at that election potentially as his his. Uh, escape hatch. You know, the Republicans, uh, if Trump or, or DeSantis wins, perhaps he can meet his objectives uh, through American politics. Yeah. I mean, there's an AP poll that sh- that found that support for Ukraine dropped from 60 percent last May to 48 percent uh, in February. I mean, I think over time people are going to hear about the spending. They're going to worry about the cost. That's understandable. But I agree with you that I do think um, we've got to watch this. Uh, the politics are getting dicey. Um, a, one more sort of meaty story before some quick things, Ben. So two stories out of Mexico I saw. Uh, a couple weeks back, we talked about the uh, Mexican president, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, or AMLO, as he's called for short. He was working to gut an organization that was seen as critical to ensuring Mexico has had free and fair elections over the last 30 years or so. So that was worrisome. It had some authoritarian vibes to it. This week, I saw the New York Times reported that the Mexican military spied on human rights advocates and journalists who were investigating them for killing innocent people. This kind of spying has happened in the past. Uh, AMLO promised to end this kind of surveillance by the military, but has continued during his administration. It's not clear if he knew it was happening or if he just couldn't stop it, but obviously doesn't absolve him. And then there's this. Uh, Last week, AMLO did an event in Mexico City with our former colleague, Liz Sherwood Randall, who is now the Homeland Security Advisor for President Biden. Liz was there to discuss the border and the fentanyl crisis. But at this event about fentanyl, AMLO says Mexico doesn't produce fentanyl, nor do they consume it, and then said, quote, why don't they, the U.S., take care of their problem of social decay. And he later claimed the problem was single parent families and people who put relatives in old age homes and don't visit them. For, for the record, 
The the suggestion that Mexico doesn't produce fentanyl is like patently false. The Mexican army constantly puts out press releases and takes credit for seizing fentanyl pills or shutting down drug labs, et cetera, et cetera. Which just gets me to my question, Ben, what the hell's going on with this guy? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, I think there's always a degree of uh, a vein of kind of populism in Mexico, some of which is kind of like understandable. So for instance, the Mexicans would always say, hey, like our cartel problem is because of your drug demand issue and your guns that then right. they, they come up and buy. Not unfair. Right. I always thought that was like a fair version of a Mexican populist argument. This has taken that to like some, some other kind of weird level where it's like, uh, you, you know, it, so it's like tapping into a vein of, of, of anti-American politics. It's kind of always around that like these drug problems, all these problems are kind of your fault, not ours. And, and your culture. Just, yeah, your culture. And we can just kind of end up in the middle of it. But there's like an eccentricity to Amlo that kind of enters into it as well. Um, and just that he seems to give kind of almost zero fucks about, you know, who he's going to piss off in the U.S. by statements like that. I mean, um, and it's also interesting that he got, seemed to get on better with Trump, you know. Um, and I think that part of that may be not necessarily political affinity like, you know, almost on the left, uh, whereas Trump's on the right. But sometimes like strong, weird strong men are just more comfortable with like other mm -hmm. weird strong men being in power in other places. But it does show this is an incredibly important relationship for migration and a lot of other issues, um, arguably our most important bilateral relationship in the world. And this guy's like not that interested in being like a, a reliable partner, which no, like you know, that matters. The Republican Party position is like sort of not that slowly shifting towards like we should declare the cartels terrorist groups and take military action against them. Like that literally some people are saying that in their House Republicans. I don't I mean, you follow this closely, too. I don't really know. It's we should dive into this fentanyl issue because I don't know the answer to it. You know, um, uh, you can seize as much as you want, but it like there is a demand issue in this country. There is a border issue. There is yeah. a, a supply issue of where it's coming from. Um and and clearly, it is something that deeply resonates in American communities because of overdoses that are happening. Yeah, I think if anything, this is one of the things. It's like a, a another warning sign of like this is an issue that uh, the old playbook of you know we try to like whack a mole demand here. You ask the Mexicans to help you apprehend stuff there, and you ask the Chinese to you know stop doing whatever they're doing and manufacturing the stuff like. It seems like that's it's not going to work. Yeah, no. Patrick Radden Keefe's book, uh, Empire of Pain, makes a really interesting and important point that fentanyl appeared on the scene sort of right around the time or shortly after the time that uh, they made changes to the production of oxycotton and oxycodone to make it harder to snort. And, you know, then people turned to heroin, they turned to fentanyl, they turned to sort of like street drugs because suddenly they couldn't, you know, consume oxy the way they were. Really kind of uh, grim stuff. But yeah, we dark, should dig yeah. into that more. Which, by the way, is a bit of an AMLO. It's kind of the point AMLO is making, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Social decay. Um, so uh, a couple things uh, for the interview. So uh, France is moving to enshrine abortion rights in its constitution. French President Emmanuel Macron said doing so would send, quote, a universal message of solidarity to all women who today see this right violated. Um, this won't happen for several months. He sort of announced it and they're planning to do it in the coming months. So we'll follow that as, as it comes. But, you know, like obviously great step forward and yet another reminder of how backwards uh, the overturning of Roe versus Wade looks to the entire world. Um, 
Another story, Ben. Uh, TikTok apparently could be in trouble. The Washington Post reported that a former TikTok whistleblower has been telling members of Congress that the company's plan to protect user data from the Chinese government is deeply flawed and won't work. So you got to wonder if that will add momentum to this sort of ban TikTok push that we're seeing. Uh, I, th- that one's coming down the pike one way or another. You know, there's yeah. a lot of momentum behind it. And, and it's just going to be a tough election cycle decision for the Biden people because Congress is getting there, you know. Yeah, I think they're getting there. And I think I think Biden recently gave Congress or asked them to do more to manage this. Um, Axios reported on the fact that a number of major retailers are dropping certain Thai suppliers of coconut milk because of allegations that the coconuts are being picked by monkey slave labor. Uh, This is like a really awful story. These monkeys are often stolen. They're chained up. They're forced to work and they're beaten. So if you're out there and you like coconut milk, don't buy it from Thailand because that's apparently the only place this is happening. Monkey forced labor. What the fuck? I mean, come on. Uh, like, I mean, the, the monkeys have, have taken enough shit from us, you know, yeah. to, to, to not have to deal with our fucking coconut milk issue. Yeah, know? that's not, it's not um, that good. Uh, yeah. So last little thing or one more, two more things. So sad news for former president uh, Jair Bolsonaro, Ben, who I saw had to turn over to the Brazilian government, the current government jewels, a watch, and other luxury items that have been given to him by the Saudi government. So it's very sad. Just in continuing his like complete mirroring of Trump and and every minute. Soon there'll be a scandal that Bolsonaro has like classified documents in his basement in Orlando. <laughs> like this guy seems no to doubt. do literally all the exact same things that Trump did. No doubt. Uh, and then lastly, uh, last month, a judge in Quebec ruled that Canadians have the God-given right to give each other the middle finger. Here's the full quote. Flipping the proverbial bird is a God-given charter-enshrined right that belongs to every red-blooded Canadian. It may not be civil. It may not be polite. It may not be gentlemanly. Nevertheless, it does not trigger criminal liability. The backstory here is a guy named uh, Neil Epstein was arrested outside of his home near Montreal after giving an annoying neighbor the uh, the double bird. Uh, And this lame neighbor called the cops, said he'd been threatened got arrested the judge ruled otherwise so you know huge loss here for the civility police was my takeaway i mean the double bird is is every every person's right um i mean a double bird really feels different too than the yeah single. it's it's you're really conveying something i mean that's like i used to have a guy when i was a, a pretty young kid i remember there's this one guy who used to love to like he'd hold up the finger and he'd yell all the way to california <laughs> And like we, we, I don't know. We lived in New York, and it, I, I, I didn't. He always did this, and I, I, I never quite. I liked it though. I was, you know, that's a kind of a verbal way of the the double bird. But I'm just, I'm just some dudes harassing you on the street corner. I don't. No, it's just like a thing this guy did. But like, I feel like the the, the middle finger used to be like a little bit more of a thing now. I mean, talk about like the coarsening of society, like. Mm. giving people the bird doesn't feel like as big a deal anymore maybe i guess canada needed to establish this i mean they're pretty polite up there so maybe there there's bigger bigger taboo yeah no we 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 used to um we used to give the bird now we like dox people and like swat their houses and <laughs> well that's their family yeah. On the internet. Yeah. I, I, I mean i remember like in um in school there was always that like the the, the clever move when you're in like fifth grade was to like scratch your nose in a way that gave someone yeah, the bird you know like uh yeah. one of those things 
Um, I'm glad that some judge in Canada would find that that's fine, you know. Yeah. But yeah, at, th at this point, we're basically threatening to kill each other online every day. So it's, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know. Things have gotten worse. Yeah. Uh, okay, we're going to take a quick break. Uh, when we come back, you'll hear my interview with uh, Nazanin Ash. She's the CEO of Welcome.us. They're doing amazing stuff to welcome refugees to the United States. So stick around for that because there are ways that you can help. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Angie's List is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Why are smart businesses graduating to NetSuite by Oracle? Because NetSuite eliminates the expense of multiple business systems by consolidating your operations together into one. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. NetSuite reduces IT costs because it lives in the cloud with no hardware required, so you can access it from anywhere. You cut the cost and headaches of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. Bringing all your major business processes into one platform improves efficiency, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math. You'll see how you'll profit with NetSuite, too. And now, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Just go to netsuite.com slash podcast25 for more information. That's netsuite.com slash podcast25. I'm so excited to welcome onto the show uh, Nazanin Ash, the CEO of Welcome.us, which is an incredible service connecting refugees with uh, U.S. sponsors. Welcome to the show. It's great to meet you. Thanks so much, Tommy. It's amazing to be here with you and this incredible community of worldos that you and Ben have nurtured. Thanks for having me. <laughs> well, thank you. I, I, I think these are people who are actually going to be very excited about this whole idea. So can you just start by telling us like, what does Welcome.us do? And just maybe talk a little bit about the history of private citizens in the United States helping refugees get resettled. Mm -hmm. I'd be so happy to do that. I think the story is so inspiring. So Welcome.us mobilizes and empowers Americans to sponsor refugees to come to the United States and helps them prepare to resettle them in their new communities and make their contributions to their new country. And, you know, as you're talking about, this practice is actually deeply rooted in our history. It's how we used to welcome refugees. And it was done by individuals and community organizations and churches 
all across the country. And it was a system that was only formalized as a government system in 1980. So in many ways, what is proving to be a revolutionary breakthrough in how we address the global displacement crisis harkens back to the way we used to do things, the way our communities used to step up to help welcome newcomers. So if um, when, a, when a foreign applicant finds you, what's the process like for, for them? And similarly, if someone's listening and they think, okay, I'd like to host a refugee from fill-in-the-blank country, what would they do to get involved? Right. So the easiest thing to do is go to our website, which is welcome.us. We try and keep it simple. And that's where you can find the tools you need to learn about the sponsorship process, to learn about the different sponsorship programs the Biden administration has made available, and to find some of the tools and training that can help you prepare for sponsorship. It's also where you can get connected to refugees who have registered on our platform. And these are people who are eligible for the sponsorship pathways that the Biden administration has made possible, but need to connect with a U.S. sponsor in order to come to the United States. And that's an amazing story by itself because the mm-hmm. platform we use, it's called Welcome Connect. It was built by a Ukrainian-American refugee and a Russian-American wow. refugee who were themselves resettled to the United States in the 1990s. They know what an incredible opportunity it is, what a vital lifeline it is. And they were so eager to help us help Americans connect with the refugees who needed sponsors and to do it in a way that was safe and that was protected and that equipped both sponsors and refugees to um, to know what they were getting into and be prepared for really successful experiences. So I know before this, you worked at the State Department, you worked at USAID, you are no stranger to the uh, sprawling, at times infuriating, at times cruel bureaucracy that the U.S. government can be at its worst and you know at its best can be great. Uh, how do you guys work with all the various agencies in the U.S. government that are also working with or supporting refugees? It seems like you've figured out how to streamline a process that can be unbelievably slow and onerous uh, for the government. Yeah, it's 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 such a good point, Tommy. And I do think that what we're finding here is a breakthrough solution for um, what governments have really struggled with, and not just the United States, but you know, governments around the world. You know, as you mentioned, I was really privileged to work at the State Department and at USAID and at the International Rescue Committee. You know, I've had the opportunity to work in what I would consider the best of our humanitarian system. And it offered a really close up view um, to both, you know, the, you know, the the strength of those systems, but also their very serious limitations. Mm -hmm. We consider the global refugee crisis, you know, this is a crisis that now affects 100 million people. If it were a country, it would be the 14th largest. You know, that number has tripled over the last three decades and our government systems and our government bureaucracies have not been able to keep up. You know, average refugee admissions over the last three decades has remained at 70,000 a year, even as global displacement has tripled over that same 
time. What we're finding in tapping into the generosity and compassion of American communities is a national capacity and willingness to welcome many more. To your point, it relied on the Biden administration, you know, seizing really innovative solutions. You know, and um, what you will know from your own government experience is that a crisis can often create that opportunity for innovation. Mm -hmm. So we were stood up when um, Kabul fell and the U.S. evacuated 80,000 Afghan refugees who needed to be resettled on a government system that in the previous year had welcomed just 11,000. So yeah. it was a huge challenge. And we entered into a partnership with the United States government to mobilize Americans to help. And what was really extraordinary was just how many Americans responded. You know, these sponsorship programs have been available for over a year now. They've expanded steadily, first from Afghans and then to Ukrainians and now to refugees globally. And over 250,000 Americans have submitted applications to sponsor over the last year. Okay. That's more than the U.S. government was able to resettle through its government systems in the last five years combined. Wow, that is an incredible number. So, I mean, I, I bet there's some people thinking that's a, a beautiful idea. I'd love to donate, but boy, you know, no one knows when the war in Ukraine is going to end. Like, wh what does that mean for me if I resettle Ukrainian refugee? How do I know how long the process is? Like, what will this be like? Can you just give us some examples of, I don't know, who is actually taking people in, what the experience has been, like how it's going? Yes, it's such a great question because I think your worldos will be inspired to hear that it's Americans of every stripe, every type. So, you know, we have sponsors um, in Alaska, in Seattle, in Hawaii, in Alabama, in Missouri, in South Carolina, in Florida, right? So it's nationwide, literally every state. We have sponsors who have young children and who have sponsored their doppelgangers, people with kids the same age. We huh. have veterans who have stepped in because they know what these humanitarian crises look like, and they're deeply inspired to help refugees come to safety. We have retirees who are finding that they love the sound of children running around mm -hmm. the house again. You know, I had um, a, a retired um, sponsor, you know, a retiree who is sponsoring, share with me that it was so incredible to see small kids playing on the playset in the backyard that his kids used to use. You know, what we often say about sponsorship is that it's an opportunity to change a life, including your own. And that's what we're seeing from, you know, the sponsors we talk to every day all across the country. I know that for a lot of um, Afghans who are trying to get out of the country and go through the sort of bureaucracy the United States put in front of them, it was an incredibly frustrating process. A lot of these individuals had helped the United States military or intelligence community or State Department in some way. And then were asked to provide records of that service, which, you know, in some cases they'd had to burn because they feared the Taliban would find that information and then harm them. 
So it seemed like there was really this onerous focus on vetting of individuals who didn't have a lot of stuff to vet, right? Now, on the one hand, I think that's unfair and ridiculous, but I also know the politics of these kinds of things, because if there's one incident that is kind of lurid and something bad happens with a refugee, it can set back your entire effort because that anecdote will burn bright in people's minds and the 200,000 cases that went well will not. So what kind of things are you doing to help ensure that, you know, these, the placements are safe and everyone feels secure and et cetera? So everyone who comes to the United States through a sponsorship pathway is still vetted and undergoes security and background checks by the U.S. government. So that doesn't change. We want refugees to be safe. We want sponsors to be safe. And the U.S. government continues to conduct those security and background checks. The way sponsorship works through Welcome.us is you connect with a refugee in need of sponsorship, and then you do a government application that's reviewed and approved, and there are security and background checks on both sides because sponsors are vetted too. Um, So the government still plays that role, and it's a vital role. What we're finding, though, is that, you know, again, by bringing Americans into the work, by providing um, the opportunity for Americans to serve as sponsors, we are extending so much more than our government systems, right? It is right for government to play that role on security and background checks. But it turns out that there's a whole host of capacity to tap into when you get to the part of the process that's about welcoming newcomers and helping them resettle and rebuild their lives. That's something our communities can do. And, you know, the breakthrough innovations that the administration has introduced means, again, that we're finding the capacity and the willingness and the commitment to welcome many more. And that's critical when we're facing the kind of refugee crises we're facing globally. These are trend lines that aren't going away, as you know well. Yeah, I mean, to your point, it does feel like every year there's another kind of acute regional refugee crisis. There's the war in Afghanistan. Uh, there are Syrian refugees. There were violence in Northern Triangle countries that led to outflows. There's Venezuela, Cuba, right? That doesn't even count the kind of looming challenge of the future where climate change leads to a bunch of climate refugees. No one country, no one you know, nonprofit or corporation will be able to deal with all of this. What kind of global coordination do you think needs to happen to manage refugee flows uh, in a way that is fair and equitable and actually helps people? Mm-hmm. Um, this is like such a vital question. You know, you had, um, you know, my old boss, David Miliband on the show a couple yeah. weeks ago. And um, what you know, the International Rescue Committee and all of my colleagues in the humanitarian system, um, you know, what we all internalize deeply is that we're in the midst of a global refugee crisis that's not going away. It's driven by protracted conflicts within states, and it's driven by, you know, a natural disaster that isn't going away. That's climate change, right? And the interplay between the two. And that butts up against a humanitarian system, an international humanitarian system that was built 
for short-term conflicts between states and for short-term natural disasters. It was built for a scenario where refugees would be temporarily displaced and then be able to go home. The facts of today are that less than 3% of refugees go home. Less than 1% have the opportunity to be resettled. And as we've talked about, there's a hundred million currently displaced. And I think if you're watching the news, you're thinking that it's countries like the United States or our European allies who are being you know, overrun by refugees and migrants who are seeking safety, seeking opportunity in their countries. But the reality is that the vast majority of these refugees are hosted in low and middle income nations. There are 10 countries with a collective GDP of two and a half percent that host over half of the world's refugees. What that means for those refugees is that they're living their lives in limbo. They can't work legally. They can't send their kids to school. They often can't move freely. They're not able to express their human potential. So we do need global solutions that tap into capacity that's far more than our government systems can do alone to create more opportunities for refugees to be able to make their contributions in their new host nations and live out their potential. To me, that's about you know, the U.S. government and other wealthy nations providing more humanitarian assistance. It's also about doing more resettlement, sharing that responsibility with those low and middle income countries to take more refugees and help them rebuild their lives, right? Let's come into this with the mindset that refugees aren't going back because they're not. And so we need a humanitarian system that recognizes that this is now a problem of generational displacement and people need permanent solutions. That means the right to work and send their kids to school in host nations. And that means uh, you know, wealthy nations stepping up with more aid to support host nations to do that, but also more opportunities to take more refugees and resettle them in wealthy countries. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people probably think the U.S. is shouldering a lot of the burden when we announce, you know, a, a cap of, say, 100,000 refugees that, by the way, we don't even come close to meeting. But if you really look at the list of countries that are taking in a ton of people, it's Turkey, Pakistan, Uganda. Jordan, you know, these are the countries and and they, again, they're struggling to provide for the needs of their own citizens. And so we need to do more to help them, but we need to ask those countries as we're doing more to help them. We need to ask them to give refugees the opportunities to really rebuild their lives there and not just live in limbo and camps. And then we also need to shoulder more of that responsibility and give more refugees the opportunity to rebuild their lives in the U.S. and other wealthy nations. Yeah, agreed. I will tell you, like this community sponsorship idea is not unique to the United States. I mean, you look at a country like the U.K. and, you know, last year they admitted only 7,000 refugees through their government systems. But when they went to their citizens and asked them if they would be willing to sponsor Ukrainians, 150,000 people ended up hosting Ukrainians. 
Mm. And they just completed a poll of people who had sponsored and almost 90% of them said they'd do it again. Wow. On to something by bringing communities into the work. It's going to give us the capacity and change the political dynamics around welcoming newcomers, right? What citizens are demonstrating is that they are far ahead of their governments in their willingness and their capacity to welcome refugees. Yeah, it's a great reminder that the actual conversation help being had by human beings and communities about refugees does not treat it like a pejorative term and are actually welcoming, unlike in our political debates. The, the one sort of caveat to that, I will say, is a lot of people in the U.S. and a lot of people internationally, I think, have noticed how mostly white, mostly Christian refugees from Ukraine are treated as compared to black, brown refugees, many Muslim refugees from Afghanistan, Syria, Africa, other places. What do you think the U.S. or other sort of key stakeholders here can do to try to make the refugee processing equal or, or at least colorblind uh, and, and you know not uh, focus on religion? So I think what I would want to um, what I would want to offer in response to that is given the opportunity, Americans will sponsor people from any background, race, religion. And that begins with the fact that we are an America of diaspora communities. Right. So think about the opportunity for Haitians to sponsor, you know, their friends and family through the sponsorship pathways that the U.S. government has now made available or Venezuelans or Nicaraguans. You know, the first people to sponsor Ukrainians were the Ukrainian diaspora here in the United States. So one aspect of what sponsorship makes possible is for our vibrant diaspora communities, our American diaspora communities, to participate in sponsoring refugees from around the world um, it, with respect to affinities that they carry. You know, the other thing I would say is that for sponsors from every corner of the country, you know, when we first started sponsorship programs for Afghans and for Ukrainians, because those were the first sponsorship pathways the U.S. government announced, we heard from so many sponsors who were asking whether they could sponsor refugees from, you know, countries that have been in crisis for a long time, whether they could sponsor, you know, migrants that were, you know, that were um, seeking safety at the U.S. border. So part of what I want to express is like there's a lid for every pot. And the more expansive we make these sponsorship programs, the more equitable the opportunity will be because we are an amazing American tapestry and our hearts are big and our capacities. We haven't found the limits of them yet. Well, I love that. I think that's a great place to end it. The website is welcome.us. Check it out. See if you want to uh, sponsor someone. Maybe can, they, can people contribute financially if they can't sponsor someone? Absolutely. So if you go to welcome.us, you will find ways to sponsor and you will find you know, the training and information you need to do it well. But if sponsorship isn't right for you, you'll also find ways to donate to our welcome fund where we provide 
um, support to community organizations that are assisting sponsors. You can find ways to donate household supplies and essentials to refugees who need them. If you're a small business, you can find out how to help local organizations in your community. You'll find so many different ways to help. I love that. I love it. And I think this audience will love it too. Uh, Nazini, thank you so much for joining the show and for all the work you're doing and uh, and keep it up and, and come back you know, next year when you guys have doubled that number. So we can, we can brag about it. We'll be so excited to do that. Thanks so much. All right. Thank you. Thanks again to Nazini for joining the show. Uh, Ben, uh, so are you going to see Lammy tonight or just tomorrow? Yeah. Yeah. Tonight. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll probably throw in a couple of drinks on this trip. And I was going to uh, say, yeah, get, get him good and hung over for any yeah. government meetings. <laughs> no, no. Yeah. Well, we'll be making the rounds with like, we'll see some of uh, our former colleagues and friends, but, uh, uh, yeah, DC's, you know, cold the same. Um, mm-hmm. but, uh, it's good Sounds to be about right. every now and then. Yeah. Well, glad you're here. We'll, we'll welcome you back. Don't worry. It's raining here too. It's kind of just nasty. So you're not missing anything. Well, I, I, it's nicer here. It's crazy. I mean, it, like you have to leave LA to get to better weather. What's going on? Come on. Stop raining. Uh, all right, guys. We'll talk to you next week. Pod Save the World is a Crooked Media production. Our executive producers are me, Tommy Vitor, Ben Rhodes, and Michael Martinez. Our producer is Haley Muse. Our associate producer is Ashley Mazua. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick, Kyle Seglin, Charlotte Landis, and Vasilis Futopoulos are our sound engineers. Thanks to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, D.B. Bradford, and Milo Kim, who upload our episodes and videos to YouTube every week. And check out the Pod Save the World uh, YouTube account. Thanks to Saul Rubin for production support. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. You can live out your MasterChef dreams. When you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that.